Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, November 17th, 2023. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Executive Editor, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Wednesday evening this week, Andrew, the National Book Foundation held a gala program in New York for the National Book Awards, always one of the industry's biggest nights of the year. The celebration for 2023 was tinged by controversy. Yeah, it was a little bit rocky for this year's National Book Awards in New York, but in the end, it all came out pretty well. Everything came together nicely, and it was a great night honoring some great authors and books. Uh, You can read all about it on the Publishers Weekly site, my colleague Sophia Stewart, was there and wrote an excellent report. So I won't bother to run down all the various and very deserving winners and finalists from this year. I'll just say congratulations to all. The winners include uh, Ned Blackhawk, who took home the nonfiction prize for the rediscovery of America, Native peoples, and the unmaking of U.S. history, which I will point out was published by University Press, Yale University Press. So congratulations to Blackhawk and to the Yale University Press. And Justin Torres, whose uh, novel Blackouts took home fiction honors. Uh, Blackouts was published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Now, as to the bit of controversy around this year, Torres actually kept his remarks very brief and instead invited a dozen or so of his fellow writers to the stage to read a planned statement on the Israel-Hamas war. Now, it was that planned statement that really caused the stir because this week, Zibby Owens of Zibby Media pulled out as a sponsor of the National Book Awards and chose not to attend, citing plans of these authors making the statement as, you know, the potential for, in her words, hate speech. And she sort of criticized the National Book Award organizers for somehow not stopping these writers from getting up and saying their piece and making the statement. And in the end, I think, you know, Zibby Owens' concerns about whether there would be hate speech at the National Book Awards proved to be unwarranted. In the statement that was read from the stage, On behalf of this year's finalists, the author said uh, they basically called for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza and expressed their opposition to anti-Semitism as well as anti-Palestinian sentiment and Islamophobia. Uh, And they said basically that, you know, bloodshed was not the way to go, that this would not be the way to secure lasting peace in the region. In the end, uh, the National Book Foundation, I think, made the right call to not try to censor these authors from speaking their minds. I think that's probably never a good idea. And especially in an industry that's all about sharing ideas and opinions, even while we all acknowledge how how fraught the this really is, this issue especially really is. Political speech is not uncommon at the awards, National Book Foundation organizers told Publishers Weekly. And this was, you know, not the only issue for this year's National Book Award, right? You know, earlier, uh, organizers had to remove or ask Drew Barrymore to step aside uh, from hosting the event in light of the now since settled writer strike. Uh, Barrymore was replaced by LeVar Burton who, along with special guest Oprah Winfrey, gave a really impassioned defense of the freedom to read and spoke out against book banners, sounding another political note, noting that you know there is a reason, LeVar Burton said, that books are under attack today, and that's because they are so powerful. And you know, echoing Burton's sentiments, uh, Winfrey gave it just a knockout speech. People were very, very complimentary of it. Uh, drew a swift standing ovation, and you know she she pointed out that book banning is about shutting people down and attempting to cut us off from one another. 
So it was a lively night, and it was a special night for this year's winners and their publishers, and you can read all about it on the PW website and in Monday's issue of Publishers Weekly. Hachette Leave, the Paris-based owners of the Hachette Book Group, announced an organizational restructuring for that trade book publisher. U.S.-based CEO Michael Peach is retiring, and his U.K. counterpart, David Shelley, will step up to a new transatlantic role. Yeah, big news this week, you know, major news and largely unprecedented, I have to say, uh, a restructuring within Hachette Leave, the, the book publishing arm of the Lagardere Group. They're bringing the U.S.-based Hachette Book Group and its U.K. counterpart, Hachette U.K., into what it calls a new English language management structure. Uh, and under the reorganization, as you know, U.K. CEO David Shelley is going to take on the CEO role for both uh, the Hachette Book Group in the United States and Hachette UK, and is going to report to Hachette Leave uh, Deputy CEO Stephanie Ferran and Arnaud Lagardere, who, of course, is the chairman of Hachette Leave. Michael Peach, meanwhile, as you noted, uh, who's the U.S. CEO, is going to retire, and he's been named chairman. And COO Joe Mangan is also retiring. And these changes come just about a week after Arnaud Lagardere was appointed chairman and CEO of Hachette Leave. Frankly, I don't know what to make of all this, to be honest. I still don't know how this is all going to work. Uh, I will say this. My UK friends have all said great things about David Shelley. Uh, he appears to be a very popular figure. But it's still a little puzzling to me to think about how these two operations, which are separate territories and have separate currencies and markets and laws, how they're going to be managed as a single unit because they are – uh, united by a common language. All apologies to <laughs> George Bernard Shaw there. And of course, the U.S. operation is significantly larger than the U.K. operation. So I guess David Shelley might be spending more time in the U.S. than the U.K. We'll have to see how that shakes out. According to Lagardere's annual report, the U.S. market accounted for 29% of the publishing division's revenue in 2022, uh, while the U.K. division accounted for about 17% of sales. And I have to say, it's also really hard. I did not see this coming. So it's hard for me to think of Michael Peach being retired because he's still very well regarded in the industry. And I just, he's very talented. I just cannot imagine that he will not be back in a key role somewhere else pretty soon. Uh, he's very well liked. Uh, and, and look, maybe he will stay in this new chairman role at Hachette for a while. Though I will note that in his statement, David Shelley said that he's happy to be working with Peach for the coming year. Uh, that coming year sort of suggests to me that there is an end date for Michael inside at Hachette. Uh, we've not yet had a chance to connect with him, so I just don't know. Lots to pay attention to here. A lot of questions, a lot of changes. Something we'll certainly be keeping an eye on and reporting on in the future. In Texas this week, Andrew, lawyers representing booksellers in the state, as well as national publishing trade associations, argued for sustaining a district court injunction that blocks that state's controversial book rating law from taking effect. Yes, yeah, so attorneys for the plaintiffs uh, this week, that's two Texas bookstores, Austin's Book People and Houston's Blue Willow Bookshop, along with the American Booksellers Association, the AAP, the Authors Guild, and the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Uh, these are the plaintiffs in this case. They very succinctly and powerfully laid out the legal and practical arguments against what they call an onerous and unconstitutional law, HB 900, which, of course, is Texas's controversial book rating law. And the plaintiffs insisted that Judge Alan D. Albright got it right and that he was justified in issuing a preliminary injunction blocking the law 
on August 31st. At its core, the plaintiffs argue in their brief that this case is about whether the government can compel private entities like booksellers and publishers to, at their own expense, make, and I'll quote the brief here, to make highly subjective, complex determinations about the content of books in violation of their sincerely held beliefs or, as a consequence, be barred from distributing constitutionally protected books to public schools. Now, this filing for the plaintiffs comes after Texas state attorneys filed their appeal on October 30th, seeking to overturn Albright's injunction. Now, in that brief, state attorneys for Texas relied on three technical arguments. Uh, One, that the plaintiffs' claims here were unripe because there's new collection development standards for libraries uh, that are in the law, and they've not yet been implemented. Uh, The other technical issue was that they said that the plaintiffs lacked standing because there was no injury identifiable yet here to, to bring the case. And they also argued that the plaintiffs' claims were constitutionally barred by the doctrine of state sovereign immunity. And as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, I found this to be a pretty odd strategy because as questions of law go, the district court did not struggle with any of those issues at all and ruled fairly simply on them. So it's hard to see why the appeals court would actually struggle with those issues as well. More on that in a second. As to the substantive constitutional questions, You know, the state basically wanted to say that, look, if we want to take these books out of circulation, there's no constitutional issue here, right? We have broad discretion to regulate what books go into schools. But the crux of the argument there was like, don't pay any attention to that appeals court (laughs) because you should be dismissing the case. So they really put a lot of, of a lot of weight on the argument that the case should be dismissed. Of course, if, you know, you don't dismiss the case, then it's, you know, it's, it's constitutional. That was the state's argument. In contrast, the plaintiff's brief takes the opposite approach. It easily dispatches with the technical arguments that the state makes, and it focuses on the untenable economic burdens and clearly unconstitutional constraints that the law would place on book vendors, which lawyers say would create, and I'll quote the brief here again too, an existential crisis for booksellers and distributors if allowed to stand. Our listeners will know that specifically HB 900 is the law that requires book vendors at their own considerable expense to review and rate books, both previously sold and new books coming out for sexual content under a really vaguely articulated standard. And furthermore, the law gives the state the power to force these vendors to change the rating on any book that they don't like and to bar vendors who don't adopt the state's rating from selling books to Texas schools. And that essentially, uh, the plaintiffs argue, imposes a state standard. And the appeal here also comes after Albright had two hearings on this law in August and ended up issuing what was widely considered to be an unequivocal 59-page written opinion in order blocking the law, in which Albright said that the burdens placed on vendors by HB 900 were so numerous and onerous as to call into question whether the legislature really believed that anyone could possibly comply with the law. And he also called the state's attempt to outsource book ratings to private vendors rather than have the state just go through and do it themselves, a textbook example of compelled speech. In your reporting for PW, Andrew, you noted an interesting legal twist. The author of HB 900, Texas State Representative Jared Patterson, filed an amicus brief with the court that apparently refutes the state's key legal arguments. Yes, so I had to read that brief a couple of times, too, because Patterson, uh, who, as you know, wrote this law, wrote HB 900, 
filed a brief that basically comes right out and disagrees with some key prongs of the state's arguments here. And, and look, maybe with reason, too, since, you know, you know how I feel. I feel like these arguments for dismissing the plaintiff's case is, is very weak. But in his brief, Patterson says that contrary to the position of the state, he doesn't dispute that the booksellers and publishers have standing to challenge those provisions of the law that seek to regulate their conduct. In fact, he says the law is clear that a party who is the object of a regulation, as booksellers are here, that they have the right to challenge it. Full stop. Patterson also says he believes the case is ripe to be decided and notes that any kind of regulation like this is ripe the moment the regulation is passed, not when provisions of it kick in down the road. So that's two of the three key arguments for the state that their own amicus, their own amici here, just basically dismisses. Instead, Patterson's brief appears to be less concerned with the rating provisions that apply to book vendors and more interested in having the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals leave in place HB 900's really sort of broad definitions for what is sexual content that should be taken out of schools. For example, he notes that the court held that the use of the term patently offensive in the definition of what constitutes sexually explicit content was unconstitutionally vague. But hey, just take that phrase out, Patterson notes, and we're all good, right? So take out the phrase patently offensive and just take sexual content completely out of schools and no problem. There's no standalone right, he argues, to have, and I'll quote him here, pornographic materials to purchase by public schools. Now, these are not pornographic materials, and that's the flaw in the argument here. Whether or not the Fifth Circuit sees it that way, we'll, we'll wait and see. But from his brief, you can see you know, what legislators are kind of thinking here with they with the the hill that they want to die on here which is they just want to ban books they just want to get all these books that have sexual content off the shelves and they're just hoping for a court decision that gives them a really really broad license to do so whether or not book vendors are the ones that have to carry it out Anyway, we'll know a lot more after the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, Mika's briefs supporting the plaintiffs are actually due today. The state has a final reply brief that's going to be due next week, on, I, I believe on November 20th. It will be interesting in that brief to see if the state has to counter Jared Patterson's brief, taking a little fire from their own side, so to speak. And oral argument is fast approaching. It is currently set for November 29th. So as we often say on these podcasts, stay tuned. Andrew Albanese, Pose's weekly executive editor. Thanks for joining me on the program with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. Up next on CCC's podcast, over two decades working in publishing, Amy Beisel held management roles in editorial, product strategy, and business development. She applies that experience today to coach rising leaders in research and publishing on how to overcome organizational limitations and to find the clarity that galvanizes action. When I spoke with Amy Basel recently, she told me what motivates someone or some organization to reach out to a coach. Sometimes people come with personal career goals. So, for example, they're working towards a promotion, they're a new manager, they have so many questions, and they've received zero training. Or maybe they've gotten feedback on a few different performance reviews. They really want to make the change, but they're just not sure how. Um, and then we assess your starting point. What's point A? So I like to do verbal 360s as well as an assessment of thinking styles and behavioral traits to get a full understanding of where the person is starting from and how they impact others in the organization. 
So once we have a clear understanding of your starting point and your ending point, we can focus each coaching session on moving you closer to that goal. Coaching Publishers, next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to this program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening.